We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. And even though he was a great man of God, scriptures tell us about a time in his life, and I think we can all relate to that either at one time or or right now, or even sometime in the future. But it tells us about a time when John the Baptist had doubts about Jesus Christ. Now John seemed like a strong man, and faithful. And yet again, there was a time in his life when his faith in Jesus wavered just a bit. And John the Baptist is one of many great men and women who have had their doubts. And they've had their struggles in their faith. And sometimes we think that great men and great women of God don't have those struggles. They don't have those doubts. They don't have those difficulties with their faith. Now, I I can see why I do, you know. I'm, you know, I I have, you know, this this mustard seed of faith is probably smaller than that. And I can have these struggles and doubts. Uh, But not these giants in the faith that we read about or that we might know, you know, personally. And so, but the Bible teaches us that great men and great women do have struggles in living out their faith. They have struggles in living out their faith. Again, we can understand why we do, but not these giants of the faith. We often think that that great men and great women don't have these struggles and doubts. And yet James tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. We read that Jesus, in all points, was tempted just as we are. So we know that great people have great temptations. But if you're living and breathing in this life, hey, you, life gives each one of us its fair share of struggles and doubts in faith, even for the greatest of men and women. And some of the greatest Christians in the church <clears throat> have had their dark times, their lonely times, their doubtful times. I mean, we read of Job who, you know, again, uh, was a great man of God, but he had his times. We read of Martin Luther. He had many dark days in his life, and he once wrote this, Having all but lost my Christ, I was beaten by the waves and tempests of despair. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and, and I've read that that's probably the second most read book other than the Bible. But John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he went to jail. Rather than compromise his faith, he once said, Though God has visited my soul with never so blessed a discovery of himself, yet afterwards I have been in my spirit so filled with darkness that I couldn't so much as once conceive what that God that, and that comfort were with which I, which I have been refreshed. So great men and great women are not exempt from times of darkness, times of doubt. Uh, it, it's human nature. It's human nature. And, and again, it, 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 when those times of doubt come in, just like with John the Baptist, it's, it, it's, it's hard to find a greater man than, John, man than John the Baptist, yet, again, there was a time when he had doubt. And for a little while, and it, and it clouded his beliefs. It clouded his confidence in Jesus Christ. But that's what I love about the Bible. It tells the truth. It tells the truth about people. It tells the truth about human nature. It doesn't tell us just the good things about man. It tells us about man's failures as well. It tells us about Abraham. 
and Isaac. They both had their lapses of faith. They lied. You know, it tells us about Moses who lost his temper and, and, and with God's people. Uh, Eli, his failure as a parent. Elijah, he runs from a woman. David had, you know, fell into adultery and he lied and he murdered and Peter denied Christ. So those are all recorded for us in the Bible. And thank God he put these men's failures in the scriptures for us because it tells us that even the greatest Christians are made of the same stuff we are. Flesh and blood. So we need to remember that we are in good company when we begin to struggle and to doubt and, and maybe waver in our faith. Just as we can reach the highest of heights, hey, we can, we can go down to the lowest of lows. That's each and every one of us. And so John's momentary lapse of faith in our text today can be really a good lesson for us tonight. When doubting comes, it can help us to overcome our doubts. And this encounter with Christ... It came when two of John the Baptist's disciples were sent to Jesus to get some information from him. John wanted to know some things. So let's begin now in chapter 11 with verses 1 through 3. How it came, now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to him, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Do we look for another? John the Baptist was really bummed out. Because, you know, earlier, prior to this, he had triumphantly announced the coming of the king. He introduced him to the people. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. You know, he had introduced them to the people at the Jordan. You know, he saw the Holy Spirit depend upon Jesus. And, and he had even, you know, some of his own disciples had, had left him to, to follow Christ. Now John, John has been thrown in prison by Herod for daring to, to criticize and condemn his marriage to Herodias. And the thing that was, was getting to, to John, and I think we can relate to this, is that Jesus hadn't done anything. Jesus hadn't done anything about it yet. Even worse than that, Jesus, who was the proclaimed Messiah wasn't doing very much uh, uh, you know, to set up the earthly kingdom, the kind that John was expecting. So John starts having these doubts. John wants to know, hey, is this Jesus really the promised Messiah? Or was he mistaken? Was John mistaken? The, the Israelites, you know, they, they would often talk about the promised Messiah. They referred to him as the coming one. John's question was really to find out who was Jesus Christ. And it seems odd that John the Baptist would ask this question. Because if anybody should know Jesus Christ, it's John the Baptist. But we're going to see how his circumstances and his thinking created some very serious and troubling doubts in his mind about who Jesus was. And that's one of Satan's greatest tricks in his book is to get us to doubt, to think the wrong thoughts about Jesus Christ. And like John, man, do I look for somebody else? Is there another answer to what I'm going through? The greatest and most important question in life is this. What do you think about Jesus Christ? Because see, your answer has everything to do with where you're going to spend eternity, heaven or hell. John the Baptist had, had many problems in the situation that he was in when he asked the question. 
But we can learn from John in his experience tonight. John handled it wisely. You see, his first thought was to find out, you know, find out who Jesus is. And this should always be the highest priority in any person's life. Who is Jesus Christ? There were many, there were many that, that could, could cause John, again, many reasons that could cause John to send men to ask Jesus about who he was. Now, there were three important things that raised these questions in John's mind, and they still raise questions in your mind and my mind today under our circumstances, whatever they might be. Number one, one of the things that caused John to send messengers to Jesus to find out about his true identity was the things that he heard. The thing that John, that John the Baptist heard about his ministry, because again, we read that in verses 1 through 11. In verse 2 it says, that when, it, when John had heard okay, about the works of Christ while he was in prison, uh, they were brought to him, the things that, that he had heard were, was brought to him by one of his loyal disciples while he was in prison. And what he heard and what he knew about Jesus confused him. And many times Satan says, oh, you know, you read the Bible and you got all of these promises and all of these hopes and all of these wonderful things. And then, you know, Jesus isn't measuring up. And then we begin to, we begin to wonder. We begin to doubt. And the things that he heard, you know, versus what he knew about Christ, they confused him. Jesus' ministry had become well known since the last time John had seen Jesus. There were all kinds of stories going around about his work and his words. But our problem is that when his works, okay, and his words, and what he does, you know, compared to what he says don't match up, we start thinking. We start doubting. And that was John's problem. What he had heard Plus the works, you know, they weren't matching up. John really wanted to know, what, Jesus, what are you doing? You know, and he's listened. He's he's listened with a lot of interest, you know, about what he's told. He's heard about the works of Christ. John's one great interest in life was Jesus Christ. His ministry focused on Jesus. Because, see, John was the herald of Jesus Christ. He was the forerunner. He was the herald of Christ that was prophesied in Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. And the works that Jesus was doing, these works caused these things to be said about Christ's ministry, and it caused John to send messengers to Christ. Now, Christ's first coming was very hard for most Jews to take because he didn't fit the Messiah, you know, description. It was even hard for, for, for John to accept because, you see, their idea about the Messiah was that he was going to come to earth, he was going to destroy their enemies, the enemies of the Jews, and he was going to set up a kingdom, and he would empower all the kingdoms of the world. But that didn't happen. They didn't think much about him first cleansing the heart of the people before he'd get rid of those who hated the people. See, John's ideas about the, the, the Messiah was more of judgment action. Oh, he's going to come like an action figure. I mean, he's going to come and you know he's going to wipe everybody out. He's going to you know knock heads around and he's going to you know make things right and then he's going everything is going to be okay. Well, that's the kind of idea that that you know, was thought about the Messiah. You know that he was you know he was going to come in and do that. But see, Jesus wasn't doing any of that stuff. Not yet that they could see. Where was Christ's judgment on Herod? You know, who, who was treating John so wickedly. 
Where was his judgment on the wicked religious leaders? Why isn't Jesus doing something? How many times have we asked that question in our life? Lord, don't you see what's going on in my life? Don't you see what I'm going through? Jesus, why aren't you doing anything? And here he's wondering, why isn't Jesus doing something about the cruel oppression of the, of, of the Roman government? But you see, John was looking only at one side of Jesus. He was looking at Jesus as the great judge and executioner. John wasn't looking at the gentle side of Christ, that tender side, that long-suffering side of his nature. So you see, this one-sided idea about Jesus' ministry caused John to ask who Jesus really was. And because John condemned Herod for his marriage to his brother's wife, Herod eventually put John in a prison. This was the second reason for his lapse of faith. The first was for the things that he heard about Christ. The second out is his circumstance. He's in prison. This is the second reason for his lapse of faith. The prison was a small, damp, dark dungeon. And here's the kicker. It was below the luxurious palace where Herod was having a wonderful time. I mean, that would be a hard pill to swallow for anybody. But especially for a man like John the Baptist, who was an outdoorsman, man. He was used to moving around and going where he wanted. He was used to being free. But you see, being in prison stopped his ministry. And unless he got out, you know, his thinking is that his ministry would soon be over or would seem to be over. Being in prison a long time or being executed was about the only thing that, that John the Baptist had to look forward to. So it's no wonder he got discouraged. It's no wonder he started to doubt his faith while he was in that place. Now, his place was a dungeon, a prison. You might be in a place tonight. It may not be a dungeon. It may not be a prison. It might be a frame of mind. It might be, you know, um, financial. It might be marital. It might be an illness. You may be in that place tonight. His circumstances, his outlook would bum anybody out. The third thing that made things really worse was what seemed like a total disregard for John. And this is the one I think many times really eats us up. Like Jesus didn't care. John felt meant that, that, that Jesus doesn't even care that I'm here. He doesn't care what I'm going through. Jesus hadn't done anything to get him out of his situation. It's like Jesus didn't seem to care about his, his condition, his situation. In verses 4 through 5, look at him now. Listen, this is what he's hearing. Jesus answered and said to them, that is the two disciples that come and ask him about who he is. He says, you go back and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Think about that. This is what he's hearing. But he's sitting in jail. He's hearing about all these wonderful things that Jesus is doing in, in other neighborhoods. But he's thinking, well, why isn't he doing that here? Why isn't he doing that for me? Why isn't he doing anything to get me out of my circumstances, out of the place where I am right now? Well, I guess those other people are more important. 
well, I guess maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe my spiritual life. Maybe I'm in sin. Maybe I'm this. Maybe I'm, I, I'm not loved. And again, Satan loves to pour it on when we're in that place, wherever that place may be. When John was first put in prison, he was expecting Jesus to come at any moment. Oh, he knows I'm here, man. He knows I'm man, but he's going to come and he's going to rescue me. Man, he's going to come and get me out of here. Surely, he wouldn't let his faithful follower stay very long in this nasty prison. But many times when we're in that place, those hours turn into days, and those days turn into weeks, and those weeks turn into months. And there's no sign of help. No Jesus. That is in my estimation. John couldn't understand it. And it made him fear. And it made him worry that maybe he made a mistake about who Jesus was. And it's kind of like Asaph. He said, man, you know, all, I, I watch the wicked all day long and they're prospering. They're having a good time. Everything's great. He says, but me? He says, you know, everything is painful for me. Everything is hard for me. He says, maybe I washed my hands in vain. Maybe I came to God for nothing. And sometimes we get to that place. But it's not till the end of Psalm 73 where he says, but then I went into the sanctuary and I saw their end. I saw their end. I saw where they're going to end up versus where I'm going to end up. You can feel John's distress. You can feel his worry. You can feel his pain. You can relate to him maybe tonight. And maybe in your own life tonight, you counted on God to do something to get you out of a mess, to get you out of some unbearable situation, and it didn't happen or it hasn't happened yet. You're in your own personal prison. You're in that place. And you've been listening and you've been watching for some hint, some sign that Jesus is going to deliver me. But that time goes on. It drags on. And with every troubling moment, every distressing moment, it raises the fearful question, does God really care? Does he really care? You see, when it seems like God isn't interested in our unbearable circumstances, it many times causes us to doubt and, 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 and causes us struggles and, and it causes our faith to waver. But we need to understand that trials in life are not wasted experiences when we look at them from the perspective that they can teach us in the knowledge of God. You see, whatever you and I go through, whatever painful struggle, whatever we go through, you know, not one you know, wince of pain, not one drop of blood or earnest sweat goes to waste in the kingdom of God. He knows every drop of blood that you shed. He knows every ounce of sweat that you drop in your service to him. Every, every wincing of pain for him he's aware of. Charles Spurgeon said this, Does a man know any gospel truth correctly till he knows it by experience? Is not this the reason why God's servants are made to pass through so many trials that they may really learn many truths not otherwise to be understood? Do we learn much in sunny weather? Do we not profit most in stormy times? 
Have you not found it so that your sickbed, your bereavement, your depression of spirit has instructed you in many matters which tranquility and delight have never whispered to you? I suppose we ought to learn as much by joy as by sorrow, and I hope that many of my Lord's better servants do so, but unfortunately some of us don't. So affliction has to be called in to whip the lesson into us. The psalmist said in Psalm 1971, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And many times that's how we learn. His word, his ways, is through affliction. It's through our difficult times. We never learn everything there is to know about God. Never. We can always learn more of God. We never stop growing. And when we stop growing, hey, that's when we start to wither and eventually die. Peter exhorts us in 2 Peter 3.18. He says, grow. He exhorts us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's an ongoing thing till the day we die, till we leave this earth. I love what A.W. Tozer said. He, he couldn't have said any better. He said, God can't use a man until he's deeply hurt him. He can't use us until he's deeply hurt us. Herod and Herodias were wicked. They were living in sin. They were living in luxury. They were living the good life, as this world would say. Up in the palace above, while John was wasting away in the dungeon below, and Jesus did nothing to punish Herod or to help John. Man, that's a hard test. For anybody, it was a hard test for John. Hard test for his faith. And for a moment, he had a lapse in his faith when he questioned who Christ was. And remember, the minute you and I begin to question Christ, that's when we get in trouble. That's how it all started back in the garden. Did God really say? And Eve fell right into it. She began to question. She began to believe the lies. Is God really who he said he was? Does he really mean what he says? From a quote from Streams in the Desert, a beautiful devotion that my wife and I have, and if you don't have it, get it. In my prison, it's one of the best devotions I've ever read, and it's great. And this came from uh, Streams in the Desert. Faith doesn't say, I see this is good for me, so God must have sent it. Instead, faith says, God sent it, so it must be good for me. You see, so John calls a couple of, of his disciples. And he says, hey guys, I want you to go to Jesus. Now when doubt comes, it's important that we do the right thing. John did the right thing. You see, if we want to get victory over doubt, we need to go to Jesus. How we react to our doubts will determine what our doubts will do to us. Will your doubts, will my doubts get the best of us or will we get the best of them? And I like this quote by Warren Wiersbe. He says, what life does to us depends on what life finds in us. What John does here to deal with his doubts was a smart move, one that you and I need to follow. First of all, it was a wise thing to look for an answer. First of all, it was important who he went to for the answer that was even more important. Because when John started to doubt, he didn't do what a lot of us do. He didn't just sit and have a pity party. He took action. 
He wanted to find the answer to his question about Jesus Christ. John wasn't comfortable having these doubts going through his mind. John wanted to know, hey, what's going on? And when it comes to spiritual things, we all need to be that way. If there's one thing that we need to know for sure, it's about spiritual matters. That's what's so important about the Word of God, knowing the Word of God, reading the Word of God. A wise man doesn't live with his doubts. They eat away at you. They will eat you up. John knew where to go to get help with his doubts. He took his doubts to Jesus. He didn't go to some unbeliever or some guru or or some doctor or anybody else. He went to the best place he could learn about Jesus. He went to him personally through his disciples. When we have doubts about our faith, we need to go to Jesus. We need to go to him in prayer especially. Especially in prayer. And the word of God. That's where we are going to find out about Christ. That's why we have the Bible. That's why it was left for us, to help us to believe and not doubt. 1 John 5.13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Notice, that you may know. Not that you may have doubts. That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe. Charles Spurgeon said this, No one but the Holy Spirit can give a man the key to the treasury of David, and even he gives it rather to experience than to study. Happy is he who for himself knows the secret of the Psalms. When you read the Psalms, you'll find just about every situation, circumstance, emotion that anybody could experience. And the answers given there by the psalmist wasn't through studying the Word of God, as Spurgeon said. It was through experiencing the trials. That's how we come to know God in His, in, you know, in His fullness. He gives that knowledge to us through experience more than study. Going to the world and going to skeptics will only make things worse. It was like the woman that suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. Mark chapter 5 tells us that she had suffered a great deal from her, from her, from her malady, whatever, again, this hemorrhaging. She had gone to many doctors, the scripture says, that over the years it says she had spent everything, every dime that she had, and it says she didn't get any better. In fact, it says she got worse. This woman tried the promises of the world. She tried the remedies of the world, and she got worse. But she knew in her heart Jesus could do what nobody else could do for her. And that is still true tonight. While John was in prison, the two disciples, they didn't run out on him when everybody else did. They didn't run out on him when he was in prison, when he was disgraced and being arrested and put in prison. They stuck by his side. These two disciples stood faithfully by John's side all the way to the end. They weren't timid. They weren't fearful. They were courageous. They weren't afraid to associate themselves with John. They were, they were true friends. They served John. They kept John in the know about what Jesus was doing. And, and they did this, this favor for John uh, out of, because of the, uh, again, to find out about the identity of Jesus for him. It was a long trip that they took from the lower part of Perea up to Galilee that, that took them through some really pretty bad country, some really rough terrain. But those are true friends who do favors for their friends. And the Lord 
took the time to listen to these two disciples and Jesus told them. He said, go out and tell Go and tell John the things which you hear, and, the, and the, uh, the, again, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And notice what he says in verse 6, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That's an important verse. He's telling what's going on, but you know what? He who's not offended, I mean, blessed is he who's not offended of me. To be offended means that, that, that they shall find no occasion of stumbling. Blessed are those who may not hear and see what they know, but blessed are they for not stumbling. What it is, it's a rebuke for showing any doubt in who Jesus is. And this exhortation is for those whose faith stumbles over what they can't understand about the things of God in life. Remember, God didn't call us to understand. He called us to believe. He called us to trust and to believe. And this rebuke is for those who don't like the requirements and the experiences and the cost involved in following Jesus Christ. The word from Jesus says the way to be happy that is blessed is not to retract our faith when we're persecuted. Not to complain when we have to suffer for doing right. We're not to be embarrassed to live like Jesus wants us to live. We are to praise Him just as joyfully during the dark days as on the sunny days. We're to accept God's providence with a pleasant attitude and not in a grudging acceptance. We're to accept the way of God, the way He deals with us, even though it seems questionable and unexplainable and unfair to our, our puny minds, trusting that His wisdom is much greater than our finite, finite minds can understand and that He knows best and to remember that God often does not deliver us out of our circumstances, but he gives us the grace to live victoriously in our circumstances in order to show his power at work through us. Isaiah chapter 24, 15 says this in the old King James, Wherefore glorify ye the Lord in the fires. You see, we're to glorify him in the fire. I, I can glorify God when I'm out of the fire. But the scripture says glorify him while we're in the fire. It's in the fire where we're to glorify the Lord. A person only has as much faith as he shows in times of trouble. Remember Daniel's three friends? When they were thrown in the fiery furnace? Remember how they came out? Almost the same way they came in. Except for the ropes that bound them. Those chains that bound them, they were loosed in the fire. How often it is in the fire of the furnace of affliction that God removes our chains. To not be offended in Christ means we have to, we have, to have a view of life that takes into account more than our present circumstances. Never judge God's faithfulness based on your feelings, based on your emotions, based on what you see and how you feel or what you're going through. We have to look, at, look, look past our problems to God's plan. He has a future and a hope for us, the scripture says. And if today's circumstances was all there is to this life, hey, it would be a life filled with a lot of unfairness. And God really would be unfair. But this life isn't the end of it. 
This life isn't the end of the show. John was in prison for being righteous while Herod was living wickedly in a luxurious palace. Was that unfair? Yes. It was unfair. But you know what? Prison wasn't the end for John. Ask yourself, how long has it been since John was beheaded? Hey, where has he been for the last couple thousand years? With the Father. In that time, he's been in heaven enjoying the wonderful joys of heaven, while Herod, though he had his times of pleasure in the palace 2,000 years ago, where has he been since then? In hell. Which would you prefer? Who got the better deal? See, that person who's only interested in today is the one who's easily offended. That's the position that Satan stresses. Hey, man, live it up. Live for today. Isn't that the world's motto? Live for today. Get it all now while you're here. Satan always points to what you don't have. He always singles you out and says, look at what you don't have. Oh, look at brother so-and-so and sister and so-and-so. Look, oh, they're just flourishing and they're just everything is just wonderful for them. And, but look at you. He always points out what we don't have, causing us to complain about God's care, about his love, about his faithfulness, about his power, his strength, his promises. That's exactly what Satan wants us to do. That's what the Jews did in the wilderness for 40 years. Complain, complain, complain. God this, God that. He didn't do this. Where's water? Where's food? All we have is this rotten manna. On and on it went. But Jesus said, Blessed are those who don't focus on the here and the now and those who are not offended because of me. Blessed is the one who waits patiently on the Lord to fulfill his program. His will in my life. Verses 7 through 11 as we close. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will repair your way. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, notice, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. After answering John, Jesus praises John. Notice there's nobody greater than John. Notice even the greatest have their doubts and their struggles and their faith. Now John was not a popular preacher because he didn't mess around. He didn't cater to the people. He didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. He told them what they needed to know. He wasn't like a lot of preachers today who stick their finger in the wind and say, oh, that's the way the wind's blowing. Let's go in that direction. John was a man of conviction. He was a man of courage. He was bold in Christ. He was the greatest of prophets, Jesus said. But how? How are the least, how are the least in the kingdom greater than John the Baptist? Mostly because we have so much more divine revelation than John did. 
We can know so much more spiritual truth than John could. Why? We have the Bible. We have the Scriptures today. We have more light. We have more revelation. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have a greater revelation of Jesus Christ than John did. The Christian today knows more about Jesus Christ and the good news, or should, should know more about Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel, the resurrection and the second coming in heaven than John in his day. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, I tell you that, not, that, that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Man, we are privileged to see and to hear the things that the prophets were waiting to see, that, that, that longed to see. Which shows that we have such great privileges today. The spiritual opportunities and advantages that we have today are so much greater than the Christians in the early church. But we need to remember to be greater than the giants of the past. In our, in our privilege, it, it, is a, it means that we have to have a much greater responsibility. You see, what have we done with the great spiritual opportunities that we have? Have we used them to grow in the faith? Have we used them to serve the Lord the best that we can? Not a lot of people have. And the truth is, is that a lot of people with a lot less privilege have done a lot more than those with more privilege. And a lot of people are going to be judged for being poor stewards of their greatest privileges. So I pray that this evening through the passage here, and again, John's struggles and his doubts makes us aware that even the greatest go through them. They have them at one time or another. It's guaranteed. It's, it's one of those promises we don't like to write down when we're told to write down the promises of God. In this world, you will have tribulation, not maybe. You're going to. It's a part of the Christian life. It's a given. But he also encourages with be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. See, we're overcomers, we're conquerors, more than conquerors, Paul said. We have to remember that. That's what we have to remember, not what Satan whispers in my ear. Oh, where's Jesus? Where's the promises of the Bible? I, I don't see any evidence that you know God is working, that God is moving. That he's even around. But again, it's remembering the word. He said, I'm always with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. What he wants us to do is to learn to trust him by faith in his word. He doesn't always give us the sense of his presence for that very reason. Because I've told you I'm always with you, though you don't sense my presence. I'm not a liar. I'm with you always. That's what we're to lean upon all of our circumstances that he is with me let's pray 
Father, we come to you this night to thank you so much for your word, God. Father, we thank you for your the power of your word, God, the truth of your word. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.